Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is Shubham Marish. Shubham is the global vice president of Mars, a privately held food company that Forbes estimates to earn roughly $45 billion in annual revenue. Shubham leads design thinking, artificial intelligence, process automation, advanced analytics, digital demand, data engineering, and platform teams. Uh, a lot of very innovative topics, to say the least. He's been in his role for a bit more than a year and a half and with the company for five. Uh, given the number of innovative topics that he leads uh, for one of the largest privately held companies in the world, I look forward to diving into these in greater detail to understand what he and the team are working on. Uh, Shubham, welcome to Technovation. It's wonderful to see you and to speak with you today. Great to be here, Peter. Thank you. Wonderful. Shubham, maybe just if you don't mind, uh, you can provide a bit of an overview to Mars Business, a, a business that especially candy lovers will be uh, very familiar with, but pet lovers will as well. Uh, talk a bit about the business you're in, if you would. Sure. And, and that is something that not many people, uh, at least on the street, if you will, are aware of. And so, yes, we are the world's largest on both sides of the aisle, if you will. Uh, we are the world's largest confectionery, you know, governments, and now obviously healthy snacking company. And we are also the world's largest pet care company. And, uh, and the pet care business is a full life cycle business as uh, you know, some of your audience may be aware. So, you know, if you think about the life cycle of a pet, everything from genetic testing services through to lab services, to wet clinics, to food and nutrition, to a product that basically is a, a GPS Fitbit style tracker for your pet. I mean, we do cover uh, a whole host of, you know, life cycle modalities, if you will, uh, in the pet care business. And so it is a pretty comprehensive business on both sides of the aisle. And uh, I don't know if you've seen some of the public figures. Uh, last year, there was a big news item on how Mars is now bigger than Coca-Cola. I don't know if you remember that article. I think it was Forbes or somebody had it. Um, and so, you know, at last reported $45 billion in revenues and over 140,000 associates, and we call our employees associates. It is as big as a small country now. No, that's that's pretty consequential to say the least. Uh, and, and as a result of that, yours is a, a consequential role as well. Let's get into that. I, I listed off a number of things that are under your purview. I wonder if there's anything you'd add to that just to sort of help us understand how you define the bread box that is your, your set of responsibilities. Thanks for that. And the role has actually evolved over the years. So when I joined five years back, I was hired, which is more kind of focused on my analytics experience. And so I had been before Mars in a bunch of startups, consulting firms, focused on big data analytics, and I've been in this space for the last 10 plus years. And so when I was hired, brought into Mars, um, you know, the company leadership actually was really looking to set up on a transformation program on analytics, data foundations, etc. And so that's how I started in the company. And as we obviously knew going in, and as we kind of built out the analytics team and the analytics practice, we realized that, well, to solve analytics, well, you need to solve our data foundations as well. To solve data foundations, you need to solve master data and upstream processes. And in order to then make get value out of data, you need you know, the analytical layer, you need AI. And if you keep going up the stack, you need, you know, integration with consumer experiences and customer experiences, et cetera. So over time, we built out the portfolio, if you will, 
to become a vertically integrated almost stack that goes all the way from metal to consumer experiences. And so um, I, I don't want to claim that there was a grand design behind how the team has come together, but but it did evolve over time as we learned what worked, what didn't work, and as the market, frankly, was evolving. And so so it's been an evolution. Um, and so it is a it is a pretty comprehensive portfolio. And as our businesses have grown and as we have grown uh, teams within our businesses, uh, and I sit at the, at the corporate center, but as we have grown teams within the businesses, we've also started moving people in and out of those the stack, if you will, so that we can replicate the stack of capabilities in our businesses as well. And talk a bit about that team, if you would. Um, how do you, given the, the the variety of things related to beginning with, as you mentioned, big data analytics, but expanding into a variety of related areas, I mentioned design thinking and artificial intelligence, process automation, uh, and the rest of what was described earlier. Talk a bit about how you have formed your team um, and maybe a bit about its scale and its substance, if you would. So I think uh, at this point, Mars obviously also outsources a lot of some of this work. And so um, I don't know if I can reveal the full scale of, of the group, but uh, basically when we started five years ago, uh, you know, our, our first push was to hire about 70 you know, data scientists and data engineers, as an example, just to give you a sense for the scale when we incepted this team. And over the years, it's it's grown. And so now, um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if the number is over six, seven hundred um, associates that would identify themselves in one of these kind of layers of the stack, one or more maybe layers of the stack. So we are looking at about 700, 800 associates and then, you know, a few thousand uh, third party partners. And so it's a pretty sizable team now for the company. But for the scale of our company, it is, I would say, at benchmark levels. Uh, from an industry standpoint and, and understand this, that, you know, we are not a pure play CPG anymore. Right. And so, so, you know, um, I think you can still classify about 75, 80% if you stretch it of our business as a consumer products business, but, uh, but we are actually rapidly morphing to become a CPG and services, consumer products and services business. And so in that sense, you know, the benchmarks are slightly different than, what you would traditionally call a peer group. Um, and that holds true even for things like artificial intelligence. I mean, we do not look at um, the, the consumer products companies alone as the peer group to either learn from or benchmark against. And so, so it's, it's quite fascinating how you know, we've kind of evolved our benchmarks accordingly as we evolve the company. And you, you highlight a really important point, Shubham, which is that the topics that you are responsible for require an ecosystem. Of course, talented people, first and foremost, within the organization and remarkable to, to, to hear that in just uh, five short years, uh, basically an order of magnitude growth in terms of uh, just data science to begin with and the team more generally speaking. Um, I talk a bit about with what specifics or more generally, depending upon what's appropriate uh, to share how you've thought about building that ecosystem, both internally, but then as you as you point out, substantially externally as well uh, to deliver what you do. Yeah, as I had mentioned, I mean, what we are trying to do as a technology and digital strategy is to move more and more towards a modular architectural approach. And so while we obviously still have our big cloud partners at the base layer, if you will, on the infrastructure side, the rest of the approach is highly modular. The rest of the stack is quite modular and it's a, 
it's it's a best of breed. Uh, we're not all the way to microservices, but I would say composable API-driven approach. And so, so that's that's how we've kind of built out the stack. So you would have the big behemoths that provide cloud offerings and their stacks at the base layer. But then as you go higher and higher towards the consumer-facing layer, uh, you know, it becomes more and more modular and best of breed. And so that's how we've kind of evolved the technology strategy. Um, you know, in terms of the, the associate strategy, again, as I mentioned, I mean, we, we do tend to hire from outside the consumer products business as well quite heavily, uh, partly because of how we are evolving. And so, uh, so these days, um, you know, we, we are focused on kind of two, two big components. There's the core of our digital capabilities and there's the growth-oriented capabilities. And so depending on where you sit, you know, our hiring strategy and talent recruitment and development strategy varies. Um, but that's, that's, that's basically how we have kind of evolved over the years. Very interesting to hear about the uh, the leap from the traditional kind of area in which you're famous, CPG, to more services, for example. And naturally, as you point out, some some differences in terms of the skill sets uh, that are necessary in order to breathe life into these growth areas uh, relative to the the traditional areas, if you would. And, and um, I, I wonder, you know, as you think about, you, you've already mentioned what's very interesting is. Uh, the competitive landscape uh, from which you draw insight and think about uh, uh, differentiation now differs uh, from from where maybe even five years ago, as some of these growth areas have developed even more momentum. Um, I wonder if you can talk a bit about the the growth of your area of influence into some of these growth areas and how that differs from the traditional areas in which the organization has played. Um, you know, how do you think about the application of you know analytics, artificial intelligence? into some of these new areas as well. Yeah, um, I can happy to talk about that. So uh, you mentioned design thinking right in the beginning and, and obviously I haven't talked about design thinking so far. Um, you know, our approach always has been use case driven and consumer first as opposed to technology first. And so one of the big pitfalls of large company technology and digital organizations is that they get enamored by the technology itself. And in our case, uh, we've always been very focused of technology being an emergent, uh, you know, capability that supports business and supports a use case, as opposed to technology being what you put in first. And so, you know, the way we have evolved over the years has been more and more consumer first and consumer oriented design thinking first based approaches. And so when I look at evolving my teams, that's exactly how I'm kind of building out the technology strategy and the team strategy. And so um, I'll give you a few examples. So, uh, you know, a few years ago, we realized that, you know, radiology in the area of AI was was going to be pretty massive and a differentiator for us. Uh, and we, and partly because we had, um, you know, an ecosystem of uh, x-rays and, and reports that, you know, we had kind of developed over the years as a business. And so we had to build out our radiology team accordingly. And, and the way we built that out was not saying, hey, I'm going to hire, you know, 80 data scientists and start, you know, tinkering around with radiology data sets. We said, hey, uh, what are vets looking for? What is it that they, what they are, what's the gap in, in the marketplace from an AI-driven radiology perspective? What are humans doing? What are human, you know, health, what is human health doing in X-ray and radiology? And so you start backwards from, 
the consumer and the and in this case the vet professional side and then build out the business accordingly and that's true even for our cpg businesses but it's even more so with our services business so again it's it's a it's a very conscious outside in approach as opposed to an you know a technology first approach you mentioned the customer at the center uh, who may be human or or uh, a pet obviously with an extension to a human yes. uh, who'd be tied to the pet um Talk a bit about, from a digital perspective, how that experience is evolving. Um, you know, so much of what you do is is very tactile. Uh, I mean, any, anyone yeah. can think, think about enjoying the snacks, uh, for example, that you develop and have in the marketplace, a very tactile experience. And so the translation to digital versions of this may, to the un- uninitiated, be uh, you know quite a leap to understand. Talk a bit about how you think about that, the d- digital customer experience, and how that enhances the the tactile experience that you were famous for. Right, and maybe what I could do there is take an example from our CPG business because obviously the wet health business is is pretty obvious, right? So we run yeah. hospitals, clinics, and so yes. the consumer touch point there is is quite obvious. But let me let me take an example of one of our you know, most famous iconic brands, M&Ms. What we realized a few years back was that, and 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 you can see that in the market with the new Barbie movie, et cetera, but we can go into the, the, the theory behind the Barbie movie. But, but on the M&Ms brand, um, we realized that the value exchange for a consumer product has evolved, right? In the past, the value exchange for a consumer product was you pay me money for a quality product at the best possible cost point, right? And price point. And it was really a, 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 a money for, you know, a quality product exchange and nothing else. And over the years, what has happened is that the value exchange for anything now, whether it's a product or a service has become a lot more multidimensional, right? And so the value exchange is you're not just buying M&Ms, the product, but you're also buying what the brand stands for. You're buying maybe an, an experience that is 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 kind of joined with the purpose of the brand and what you believe you're buying and maybe an immersive experience where you can relate to the brand a little more, right, than you used to as a product transaction or as a consumable kind of transaction. And so as the value exchange has evolved, we've also started evolving our go-to-market and our consumer interaction model. And so M&Ms is an example where Two and a half years ago, you know, we we faced the choice of revamping our uh, website. Two years back, you would have just said, "Hey, it's a website. Okay, fine. You know, pick your poison, Adobe, Salesforce, whatever. You know, revamp the website. Yes, it's a direct-to-consumer play along with our retail operations and our and our uh, partners like Walmart, etc. But it's a website. And and what we did there was we said, no, let's think about where this brand is going." Where is the value exchange going? What does that mean for the brand's evolution from an interaction standpoint? And then say, what does it mean for a technology strategy? And it was very clear if you thought about it that way, that the technology strategy has to be a mark-oriented strategy. And mark for your listeners is basically microservices, API-driven, cloud, headless uh, architecture strategy. Why? Because you know we may evolve this brand into movies, into, uh, you know, uh, integrating with NFTs, which we did, by the way, uh, into, you know, maybe VR, AR experiences in the future, 
maybe an augmented experience in our stores. And so the moment you start thinking future back, you suddenly realize that the technology strategy of a website replacement is no longer a website replacement, just a website replacement, right? And so, so if you go to that, that site now, it is actually built on mark principles. It is actually quite extensible to other experiences. It is modular, it's composable. And so much so that our partners that work with us said, we have not seen this before. Can we take it to market jointly with you? And so we are now, we have a product out in the market where Mars is supporting a product where we have packaged our IP and we have opened it up for the market because it was it was so good, so unique. And our partners said, hey, can we monetize this with you? And so that gives you hopefully a sense for where how kind of the thinking on, on technology, AI, analytics, data, everything has to change. And it has to start from where are you taking the brand and the consumer experience and then work backwards. And so that's been a big, big learning for us. And, uh, and that's something that we are continuing to double down on. So much of what you talk about, uh, Shubham, you are clearly a deep technologist, but you, you, the comments you're making draw heavily on brand, on marketing, uh, on sales, of course. And clearly, you know, as as design thinking itself also um, bleeds or blends across a variety of skill sets. Yeah. Um, I'd love to understand a bit more about how you draw in uh, people with a variety of disciplines to the work you do across your organization. It, clearly, yours is one that is not. I mean, I'm sure you have natural silos, but they seem to be very permeable silos. Uh, allowing talented people to pass across there to collaborate in some interesting, unusual ways, and thus leading to the kinds of insights you're drawing from. Can you talk a bit about how that collaboration works? Yeah. So I think, uh, you know, I have, I'm a student of obviously, first and foremost, my own creative process, right? <laughs> which everybody <laughs> is, I guess. Um, and then, and also of, of creativity and how innovation happens. And so, when I looked across uh, the literature and my own process, I realized that, uh, you know, people talk about creativity as if it's creativity in and of itself is a skill that you learn. Actually, when I studied my own creative process and, and the ability to connect the dots like we are talking about, I quickly realized that creativity is actually an emergent property. It's an emergent skill. It's not like you go to a class and you're going to learn creativity. No, you're going to learn what causes creativity to happen, right? And and if you dive deeper into that construct, what causes creativity to flower and, and, and happen is three things, okay? It's first and foremost curiosity. And some of that curiosity is directed curiosity. Some of that is undirected curiosity. So the first thing that we look for when we're hiring people is do they have a learner's mindset? Are they curious? And they need not be curious about APIs and the job that they do. They could be curious about anything. If you're curious about Wes Anderson movies, I'm happy for you. And I will still figure out if, you're, if that curiosity is limited to Wes Anderson movies or can that extend to other realms, right? And so we are first and foremost looking for curious people. And we are trying to build out that curious mindset. And, and I have always talked about things that are outside of work, right, in my internal team meetings, because I, I really want to hammer home the point that it's okay to be curious. I want you to be curious, and curiosity doesn't stop at work, right? And so that's the first thing that I think is a key ingredient to the emergent property called creativity. 
The second key ingredient is collaboration. Creativity happens when you're bouncing off ideas. Creativity happens when you're being highly collaborative in the pursuit of a problem, right? And so obviously there is the, the problem to be solved that starts it all. But assuming that you have a problem to be solved and you have curious people, the next thing you need is collaboration. And for that, what you need is psychological safety. There are other kinds of things that you need to engineer the, a collaborative atmosphere. But collaboration is the second thing. And the third thing is, um, you know, a, a license to experiment and fail and test and learn. And so if you put these three things together, curiosity, collaboration, and experimentation, that is what leads to the emergence of creativity. So when I look at uh, either hiring people or structuring the teams or talking to our, uh, you know, our uh, management teams on how, how to fund uh, some of our innovative endeavors, this is, this is the kind of mental model that I use, right? And over time, there are other things that emerge from this mental model. You know, a learning learner's mindset emerges from here. Confidence emerges from here, right? As a company, not individually alone, but as a company. I mean, if 300 people got together to implement a new M&M's, uh, you know, experience, and these 300 were not all technologists, imagine the confidence that they have when they have to do the next new thing, right? And so, so again, there are lots of benefits of that core construct of curiosity, collaboration, and the license to experiment. And so that's really the, the mental model that kind of I apply when I'm looking at either building teams or, you know, solving a problem with teams. And so, so again, I don't know if that, that helps give you a, a sense for how we kind of approach these things at Mars, but, but that's something that now we are taking to other teams as well. So what if you're a finance team? Yes, you're a marketer, you're expected to be creative, but if you're a finance team, you're not expected to be creative. I don't want you to be creative accounting-wise, but I still want you to be creative, right? Um, so again, I mean, that's that's the thing that we're taking elsewhere. So, And that is what the digital mindset really means for us as well. And so digital doesn't stop at technology, doesn't stop with my team uh, at Mars. And that's the, that's the movement that we are trying to drive. I, I really like that. Some some fascinating insights you had from across this. And it brings to mind the necessity to get outside of your comfort zone, to have the confidence, as you say, to uh, to tackle difficult problems. I, I think that yeah. there's, there's um, you know, oftentimes, especially younger uh, teammates, but, 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 but to some extent, perhaps uh, many, many others as well, have the fear of, of approaching things that they're not confident in or have never experienced before. Getting over the hump of that through a, a variety of, of new experiences and successfully seeing those, those through oftentimes is the best way to gain greater confidence next time there is something, some challenge you have that you've never been a part of previously and, and overcoming that. It's a means of gaining, I like how you said it also, company-wide confidence, not just individual confidence, the, the collective confidence culturally. Very, very interesting right. insights from that perspective. As a company, I mean, I can see that change happening, right? Mm. So we, it's not that we don't fail and everything is as successful as the M&M's, you know, rebuild, if you will. But, but I can see how we tackle failure. I can begin to see how we are taking learnings from that failure. So it's one thing to say, I don't care about failure. It's okay to fail, but you still want to take learnings out of that failure. So you don't have to doing that again. So we, I can see that that happening now. And there are many, many examples where we have failed actually. And, you know, I can give you a couple, I mean, 
direct to consumer everybody jumped into direct to consumer every cpg brand jumped into direct to consumer uh, in the last few years and and it's not that we haven't been less successful i mean than we expected um but but it's what you do with that failure and what is the lesson that you take from that failure is the lesson we shouldn't be in direct to consumer or is the lesson that maybe we were you know we were over ambitious on these three things right maybe we really didn't think that customer acquisition costs would go down less precipitously as we saw they they didn't come down as fast as we wanted them to with scale and so on and so forth so there are you need to take those learnings and then you say what what does that mean for the future so i think i think there's something to be said about how you take failure as well not just giving a license to fail um and and so on and so forth that we can get into but uh, but i just think that it it should be said that not everything is successful and that's okay again really critical cultural elements uh, as well well an area of great experimentation where certainly the the pathways to success are not fully known yet uh, are around generative artificial intelligence generative ai um yeah. and, and as somebody who's been immersed in data analytics machine learning artificial intelligence uh, rpa you know a lot of the kind of necessary ingredients that yeah. educate one into the potential uh, relative to a topic that is really in the grand scheme of things still so new uh, within an enterprise and even a consumer perspective now. What, what's your yeah. thought process there? I'd, I'd be, be interested in the way in which you're thinking about experimenting with it and how bullish or bearish you may be as to the possibilities relative to it. Yeah. So the first thing that I would say, the two, three things that jump at me about generative AI, and actually I am less skeptical than I was um, you know, six months ago. Right, and so six months back, when you know we just had the the November release of Chat GPT, etc. I mean, I was a lot more skeptical than I am now, given that there is a pace of change that we are all seeing in the last six months itself as well. Um, but you know, there are a few areas that are emerging. So the first thing I want to say is that it's early days for everyone. Okay, so if you are a consumer products company that is saying, "Oh, am I am I late?" you're not late. In fact, uh, even big technology companies that talk to us are freely admitting that they are still learning, that they don't know how this everything works. We, they know some of this, but they don't know every how everything comes together and how it work, really works. And you can listen to any podcast uh, of any of these big companies and you will see that you know they're admitting to that. So everybody's learning. We are still in an early phase of evolution, but but it is quite clear to us that this is something special and there's something going on here. This is not, this is not a blockchain crypto moment. This is, this is probably more real than that. And, and somebody is going to beat me up for saying that, but, but this is probably more real than that. And there are some very clear use cases that are emerging in our minds, right? So one is the whole summarization and the Microsoft calls it the co-pilot model where you have a co-pilot that's an AI that is helping you with simple tasks to begin with, which is document retrieval, summarization of documents, um, you know, search, semantic search. And those are things that are very clearly going to remain. They're very clearly breakthrough technologies. They are indeed a, a Google moment where Google was, what Google was for the internet, you know, the Maybe chat remains the interface, but GPT is for, uh, you know, an enterprise search, right? For example, and so, um, and so that's that's one. So the the semantic search, summarization, retrieval of 
nuggets from documents is one bucket, I would say. That is, that is quite clearly there and it's going to accelerate. The second is completion, right? So sentence completion or code completion. And so clearly coding and software engineering is going to be equal parts or more prompt engineering uh, going forward than not. So coding and software is the other big area. So, so again, the, the summarization and then the, the uh, sentence completion leading to coding is the second one. The third one is the diffusion models, right? So the third third area is uh, generative AI as it relates to diffusion models, right? And diffusion models like stable diffusion, mid-journey, et cetera, where content generation, especially images, uh, and conversely, understanding of images, right? And into maybe text or other forms of other modalities is going to be the third big area of, of growth that is already there. You can see the version one to version five of mid journey and how that's evolved and how hyper-realistic those images are now to, to understand the power of that piece. And the fourth, which is, which I, I wouldn't really classify it as an individual area in and of itself is probably a combination of the other three, right? So consumer experiences, right? How do you build consumer experiences taking into account image generation, sentence completion, and summarization as the three uh, big use cases that are emerging and create a, a unique consumer experience? Maybe it's chat-oriented. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's personalized, hyper-personalized consumer experience, which is an outcome of the other three. But but that's what we are seeing play out in this space. Like any other company, we have a lot of questions from our board management on, on this topic. And, and we, are, we are early days and we're still trying to put together the strategy, et cetera. But what we are very clear is that we will always be principle driven. And we have the Mars five principles. For those of you who don't know, you can go to our website, quality, responsibility, mutuality, uh, efficiency, and freedom. And so, we will always remain grounded in our principles and purpose. We will be responsible. And so we are not going to, we have actually, we don't, we have shut down, you know, chat GPT experiments without approvals. You can't just go and, you know, with your enterprise account work on that. So, so we are going to be responsible. We are, we're going to, we are looking at this space very clearly, closely. We are in close contact with our R&D teams in our partners, Microsoft, AWS, Google, et cetera. So we are very tight with them. And so, you know, we are taking a, a measured, but very clearly, we're clearly seeing the signs of this being something really big. Um, so I hope that kind of gives the audience a, a sense for the domain areas that we are looking at without being too specific on, oh, in supply chain, I'm seeing this and that, you know, but, but you can right. kind of, you know, extrapolate those and where they may be more applicable than not. Yeah. I also wanted to ask, uh, Shubham, I mentioned at the outset, you're a privately held company. You've, you've alluded to it as well. What, what are the, are there any interesting aspects to the way in which you think about investments that are different from a publicly traded company? There are some obvious ones that might come to mind, but I wonder how that applies, uh, yeah. you know, from a cultural perspective, uh, different from other companies you may have worked for that were publicly traded. Right, 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 right. So, uh, you know, we, we do measure ourselves across four big dimensions as a company. And so let me start there and then I'll go to uh, capital allocation a little bit uh, as it relates to digital. Uh, the way we measure ourselves is across four kind of quadrants, if you will. Uh, it's obviously financial growth, right? And, and uh, how well we're doing there, top tier financial performance. And, you know, as I said, our, our peer group is changing as we evolve. 
by top tier in whatever the peer group definition is. Uh, obviously, we want our, our, our growth to be quality growth and not a one-off growth. So the second quadrant is, so one is financial performance, which is the PNL. The second is growth orientation. We want to be in tailwind categories. We want to be in categories that are naturally have a tailwind behind them. And so we are not growing because we're taking price. We are growing because the category is growing. So that, that has always been our philosophy. That's always been the philosophy of top tier CPGs. And so that remains a key component of the four quadrants. And then there are two quadrants in the, in the bottom, but in no means less important for us. And the third one is trusted partnerships. And that kind of ties in with our mutuality principle as well a little bit. But basically, we want to be trusted partners of all our stakeholders. And so the stakeholders could be vendors. The stakeholders are communities that we live in. The stakeholders are communities that we buy from, right? Whether it's cocoa or other uh, products. And so there's the trusted partnership piece on how, how effective are we in the, in the world we live in, right? So that's the trusted partnership. And then the fourth one is positive societal impact. And, and there it, we have a commitment to our pets. We have a commitment to the planet. We have a commitment to net zero, which is one of the more aggressive commitments that you would see from a, from a large company of our scale. And so those are the four quadrants. And so when I think about any capital allocation decision, whether it's a digital decision or an M&A decision, I do look at all these quadrants and see how it sits with all of these quadrants before making that decision. So, so we, have a, we have over the years honed our process and being private, allows us to think longer term. I am not sitting here. I don't have a gun to my head. Next quarterly report, I have to show some growth. Uh, and we are, we are blessed that we are growing pretty pretty nicely. But, but unlike uh, a publicly held company, I don't have those constraints. Um, and I don't have the documentation constraints while we do produce a lot of documentation, but I don't have the kind of constraints that public companies do. So I can think longer term. I, I can think we have a, um, we, we, we talk in generations. The generation has multiple meanings. It's the generations of our communities and stakeholders and, the, and us, but it also means generations of the Mars family. And so we think in generations and we think longer term and that completely changes the mindset, how you make decisions, how much you put in, you know, in terms of investment, all of the above. And, and you can balance these, these four quadrants also very well in making those decisions. Because there is a trade-off, obviously, right, amongst these quadrants. And so you can manage that tension if you think long-term. Because if you don't have the long-term, uh, if you don't remove the constraint of time like we do, then you can't make those trade-offs, right? You'll always, you know, veer towards the, the top quadrant of financial performance and quality growth, right? And so, so again, I mean, you know, the, all this is publicly available. You can go to our website and, and read it up. Uh, we've been a lot more open about sharing our methodology our thinking our principles uh, with the external world and so so i think that's that's something that your audience could go and read at mars.com and, yeah. and, and a good suggestion to do so to go to mars.com and to see that um, i wanted to ask you shubham naturally given your role we've talked about a number of uh, rising trends um, any others we've missed that particularly excite you as you look to the future that are making the way onto your onto your roadmap yeah, so I mean, you know, we talk a little bit about marketing, and I, I, I still think that you know, marketing is transforming quite dramatically. Um, you know, and you can obviously there is the 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 new cycle, and 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 you know, what will happen with ad driven business models, etc. 
from a platform perspective. But I think that there's a pretty significant evolution happening on the the relationship between consumers and brands, how you then market, uh, you know, what is permissible, uh, what is not, and and how do you stay on top of that? And you've seen some uh, some missteps from some of our peers, right? Whether in the beverage industry, et cetera, where where you know it's a very fine balance, and and you you got to really be on top of how you're thinking about the value exchange. So there's there's definitely a a, a sea change. So we talked about AI. I think in marketing as well, there's a there's a lot happening, and with what's happening with Meta and with the EU. Uh, as well, etc. So there's there's something there that that we are really keeping an, our eyes on, and then I think um, on sustainability. You know, sustainability is a is a pretty big deal for us. We have been on this journey longer than most, given our long term you know thinking and our four quadrants that I mentioned. And so I do think that uh, you know companies don't realize how much investment they need to make to really meet their commitments. And I think there there's some companies will be in for a surprise, you know, in terms of either extending their commitments or or not being able to meet them. And so I think sustainability and the future of sustainability is, is a big thing for us. So AI sustainability, the future of marketing and, and how brands are built and grown uh, are areas that we really are, are focused on. Um, and then obviously for us, we are always on the lookout for, you know, new pillars of growth. And so acquisitions remains a big, big, big area for us. And and then there's a long tail of manufacturing excellence, uh, you know, uh, automation and manufacturing, physical automation, not RPA. Um, there's a lot of kind of these initiatives that are that are at play, um, and many transformations as well. So, yeah. Very interesting topics, all. I appreciate you raising those and give us reason to to think further about the potential. Uh, application of those uh, and continued advancement relative to them within a, the context of Mars. Uh, Shubham, I wanted to conclude by asking you for uh, any sort of secrets to your own success. You've reached a uh, a position of consequence in an organization of consequence um, and and have, have had numerous roles across uh, um, large scaled organizations. I, I wonder as you reflect upon your, your career, what some of the difference makers were, perhaps tuned towards others who might be listening, who might wish to walk, walk in your footsteps. What have what have been some of the keys to, to your own success? Yeah, I think, um, and I, I I have to kind of put it all together, but I think I've given some hints in obviously this this conversation as well in terms of the mental model around how you approach, um, you know, um, a new problem or a new uh, job, if you will. Um, in terms of curiosity, collaboration, experimentation, and the stuff that I talked about, but but I think I think in addition to that, um, I do think that uh, being principled and being genuine, right, and generally caring. So so I think that shows, um, you know, and and so I think uh, it's it's sometimes it's hard to maintain, but I think if you can be principled and uh, and caring as well. Uh, in addition to you know your mental model on how you hone your skills, which is the more hard skills, if you will, um, that's really it's that combination that I think I think makes somebody successful. Um, I mean, there are lots of resources online that I can point to. Maybe we can add them to the to the notes, show notes, where where I would recommend some books, etc., to read that I have found meaningful. 
from a career development perspective. So if you are looking to you know, go to the next level, what are some of the good books that I've seen and I've read? Uh, and so I, I'm an avid reader. You know, it's just simple things, really. It's, <laughs> so my mental model is not very complex. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a personal learning mindset mental model. There is the how you deal with, uh, you know, your, your peers and, and people that are reporting to you mental model, right? Uh, and obviously uh, with, your, with your seniors. And then the last mental model is obviously don't forget, uh, you know, uh, our work-life kind of, uh, you know, equation has completely changed. And so don't forget your family and, and the community that you're, you're in. And, and that, kind of, that kind of gels well with at least the Mars culture that I've been explaining over the last 40 minutes. Um, and so obviously finding a place where there's a cultural match is quite critical uh, to succeed as well. And for that, you need to know yourself a little more to understand where the match is. These are some of the things that come to mind, but, but I, I do want to add some uh, reading references uh, in the show notes. I would love that. While we're having the conversation, though, is there like maybe one or two or three that immediately come to mind? Uh, some that you maybe return to as points? Yeah, yeah, points? yeah. So I think, I think you know, uh, a few, right? So one is, and I have some of them around here, but uh, I think emotional intelligence, everybody knows that, the Brandon mm-hmm. Goldman book. I mean, you know, so I think that is there. I think Marshall Goldsmith's uh, What Got You Here, you know, uh, won't get you there as I think what it's called. And so some of those those books I've, I've found quite meaningful as I've kind of grown in my career, right? Um, but we can add a bunch. I mean, these are just top of mind, but uh, again, you know, and, uh, and if, if, if somebody's interested and happy to, uh, you know, maybe even add my, my Twitter handle or something for them to reach out to me, but, but yeah, I mean, we can, uh, uh, I can share some more that are more specific to subject topics like AI, what's the best book on AI and what's the best. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, but, but the other book that I would really, really recommend is build. Um, by Tony Fadell, uh, because I think that, you know, a lot of the constructs, when you really think about org design, and that is something that occupies a lot of my time, how do you redesign the org for the future? I think there are some nuggets of wisdom in, in how Tony kind of has talked about product management and the way teams are organized in a product management construct, um, agile, et cetera. And so uh, Build is another book that I would really recommend as a management book, not not only as a as a book to guide your own entrepreneurial journey, but also as a management book. And and I think there are some very interesting uh, nuggets of wisdom there too. Well, uh, Shubham Marish, thank you so much for a very thoughtful and thought provoking conversation, emblematic of this uh, wide array of innovative topics that you are. Uh, that you lead for Mars. Uh, thank you for letting us into your own thought process, uh, some of the design that you put in place to ensure uh, your team's success. Uh, it's been a, a terrific conversation. No, thank you, Peter. I thoroughly enjoyed it. So thanks. <laughs>